Crosswalk Church Podcast in Phoenix, Arizona. Let's open up our uh, Bibles to uh, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, and we're going to dive into this second message. Uh, we'll be, be, begin reading at uh, verse 7 in 1 Kings 17. Inside your program, as I mentioned before, you have a white half-sheet note called the Crosswalk Note, so pull that out because that'll be helpful to you. Before I dive into reading today's uh, message, today's text from 1 Kings 17, I want to talk a little bit more, as I did last week, about why are we, why are we directing this series, Elijah, more specifically to men. And I want to say to the ladies, as I said last week, this is not uh, an intention to leave you out. But at Crosswalk, we believe that uh, God has called men to lead and lead spiritually, like Elijah did. And that he is a, a, a great example for us. Uh, in, in how a man can be a spiritual man, how a man can be God's man and truly lead. And we feel like that there's more of that needed in today's society. And one of the reasons we feel that more of that is needed in today's society is there are so many mixed messages in our world today just simply about what it means to be a man what a man's purpose is, what a man's goal should be, what a man's work is. So I have Inc. Magazine, and the big headline here is How to Be a Great Boss, uh, you know, implying that men are about being bosses. We all know that. We love to boss people around. And then down here, you got Most Ruthless Competitor. Is that, is that what manliness is? Being the boss and the most ruthless competitor. Here's another message. Carlos Slim Halu, the world's wealthiest man, has a plan to reboot the economy and across here, billionaire, uh, on the 25th anniversary issue and a list of the 1,226 richest people on the earth. Is that what being a man is? Amassing the most wealth that you can so that your net worth equals your self-worth. Or maybe you would say... You think that men should look like Justice Anthony Kennedy, who on Time Magazine is referenced as the decider. The most important job of a man is to be a decider, to be decisive, and not to hem and haw and sit on the fence and leave people doubting where he stands. Or maybe you like the kind of man that's on the cover of Details Magazine, where you can read about the stylish man's guide to summer. Maybe you, your view of a man is the metrosexual view of, uh, of a man. Adam Levine is uh, the prime example of the details man. And you can read about the latest diet craze, chic suits, and the hottest workout trends. That's your idea of being a man. Outside magazine, being a man is all about the weekend. Make sure you got your time to uh, paddle around on the lake. And let me tell you, uh, there's nothing like paddling around on a lake. It is great stuff. 27 quick and easy adventures. Being a man is all about getting outside and being adventurous. Fast Company. I love this one. There's CeeLo. Don't you love CeeLo? Man, if you watch that show, he just he makes my day brighten up. CeeLo is awesome. Mentor, producer, showman, entrepreneur, CeeLo in a pink jacket. It doesn't get any better than CeeLo, right? I love that. 
I actually do love CeeLo. He's awesome. But right up here, 100 most creative people in business. That's why he's on there. He's regarded as a creative guy. Is that what being a man is all about? Save this one for last. Junior Sale. Do you know what happened with Junior Sale? Amazing NFL football player. One of the best ever. And he recently committed suicide. And the little subtitle down here is, he didn't want us to know he was hurting. And I think there are a lot of men in today's world who believe that to be a real man is to not let anyone know what's, what's going on in here, to not let anyone know that you're hurting. But I wonder sometimes if we realize the damage that's being done inside of men today by our culture's message that men have to stuff it and keep it inside and suck it up and don't let anyone know anything but that stone poker face that you keep up to to hide the pain that's going on inside of you. Cost Junior Sale is life. There's uh, one other book, this one. On the spine of mine, it says Holy Bible. And in here is a lot of great stuff about what it means to be a man in God's world. And because it is God's world, what it means to be a man in today's 21st century world. And because there are so many messages out there today about what it means to be a man, and and it can be confusing to us, we wanted to take time during this Elijah series and really talk about, okay, what does God want from us men? What What is God asking of us? And then even more importantly, what does a merciful and gracious God offer to us men so that we can have the courage and the confidence that it takes to ensure that we are God's men and that all these messages are kept in perspective because we know the truth of what God's message is to us about being his man. With that introduction, I want to go into our our second installment and read this entire account to, to set it up, remember last week we talked about Elijah. He was, he was living in a time and in a day where the worship of God was waning even amidst God's own people. And if you recall the background that I gave you last week, what had happened was that God's family, the Israelites, had gotten into a huge civil war. Originally 12 tribes, two of those tribes had split, split off in the south and had formed a nation called Judah around the hill country in the, and the city of Jerusalem, the former capital where the temple of God is, and that became Judah. The northern ten tribes under the leadership of uh, their king Jeroboam also split off and formed a new country called Israel. Also considering themselves to still be God's people, but very rapidly because of leadership that was not solid, and was not asking the kinds of questions that we're asking here today. What does it mean to be God's people, God's men and God's women? The nation of Israel very quickly began to drift into idolatry. 
And under Jeroboam, they began to uh, build temples and shrines to other gods. And in particular, as you saw in the video, they began to worship a, a god called Baal or Baal, as we sometimes call him, and his female counterpart, Ashtoreth. God had commanded his people, only worship me and have no other gods. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The most famous saying in, in the midst of all the Jewish verses that they love to say, uh, the, the key Bible passage in the Jewish liturgy is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Still repeated today by faithful Jews all around the world. And the Israelites were forgetting this. And they fell deeper and deeper into idolatry as Jeroboam gave way to other kings. And finally now we're four or five kings down the track. 200 years, uh, 150 years after the split, the civil war. And we're, we're two and especially idolatrous king and his wife, a king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Very wicked. In fact, they were determined not only to just allow idolatry to take place. See, that's Jeroboam was kind of like, ah, you know, if it happens, I'm not going to oppose it too much. Now we've got to Ahab and Jezebel, and they're driving the idolatry now forward. They're like, we need to get more people in the nation of Israel worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and driving the people as they do this away from the one true God. And so what happens now is God is a merciful God. The, the very God that you and I worship today, the one that we worship as the one who sent the Messiah and the Savior, the one who sent Jesus to be our redeemer at the cross to give his life for us so that we could, on a day like Father's Day, call our Heavenly Father, Abba, Dad. That merciful God is the same gracious God that we encounter in today's reading. So as you, as you hear this reading that I'm about to read, I want you to think, Man, is this not the same God that we worship? And understand that this is a key difference between Jehovah or Yahweh, the, 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 the covenant God of the Israelites, and Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal and Ashtoreth were extremely judgmental gods who basically stood over the people. And the people's belief, of course, they weren't real gods. But as the people believed them to be, these were gods that would wag their finger in your face and get in your face and judge you and hold you in contempt as opposed to this amazing, gracious God that the Israelites had originally followed. And, and you'll see many acts of God's undeserved love in what we're about to read. First Kings 17, some time later, the brook dried up. Now we had left... Uh, Elijah at a brook where God had told Elijah, I want you to go there to hide from Ahab. I want you to go there uh, to hide from Jezebel because they're after you because they know you're my man. So he's hidden mercifully, Elijah, by this brook. But the brook dries up because there had been no rain in the land. And remember, God had sent Elijah with that very message to tell Ahab and Jezebel, because of your idolatry and because you're leading my people, there's not going to be any more rain. There's going to be a drought. Well, 
As you can see here, Elijah is not only the messenger, he's also someone who has to suffer the consequences of that drought himself. The brook dries, dries up in, uh, in, in this Kareth ravine, as it was called. Then the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So God is graciously going to take care of. He's going to protect and provide for Elijah. So he went to Zarephath. Elijah went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. Right? Just like a man, right? Can you get me a drink and can you get me some bread? I'm doing that all the time to Julie. I, just kidding. As surely as the Lord our God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. I don't, I don't have any. I'm wondering what, what Elijah's thinking about this time, right? I mean, we'll go back and talk about how he had been getting his groceries prior to this. But he gets to this widow. She doesn't have anything. All I have is a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And if Elijah in that moment had an oh great moment, we don't see it. We don't see it. Because look at what he says to the widow. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away, this widow, And did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Every day. Every day. For the flour, the jar of flour was not used up. And the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Some time later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. She grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and and kill my God? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Just pausing there for a second. You know, sometimes in that video that shows before the the message, you hear something that sounds a little bit like a magical incantation. I want you to know that's not a magical incantation. That's Hebrew. And when you hear that language that you can't understand, I I don't want you thinking Harry Potter, like, okay, he's got these magical incantation words. What he's doing in the Hebrew language is, is, is these words right here. He's calling on the Lord. The covenant God, the God of the, of the Israelites, and he's asking God for help. He's just doing it in Hebrew, and they put it in Hebrew, but it's not some sort of magical incantation. It's a prayer, and he's asking God for help, as he's doing here. And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. 
The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So I want you to, let's step back for a moment. God, in his grace, remember, this is the same gracious God who sends Jesus 800 years down the line, but that there was a promise of Jesus Christ that goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, to the, the moment after Adam and Eve sinned, and God promised them that he would send a Messiah. And that promise is carried down through generation after generation, then carried through the Israelites. And of course, we know that Jesus was born as a Jew. The Jews are really hoping in this same God that has made this covenant or this agreement with them, I will send you a Savior and he will redeem you from your sins. He's a gracious God. And we see God's grace in this, that when his children begin to wander, he is on it. He is after them. In, in God the Father's eye, he can see a train wreck coming down the pike. And he knows that he has to address that train wreck. In fact, I want to read to you from the book of Amos. Because Amos was another prophet that God graciously sent to his people to call them to repentance, to call them to forgiveness, to call them away from their idolatry so that he could lovingly put them back onto the, to the right track. But when you begin to drift from God as the one and only God, you're going to drift from all the other commandments too. When you no longer respect God, then what's inevitably going to happen is your respect and your love of people is going to begin to crumble as well. And that is exactly what we see happening in Elijah's day as Amos, another prophet, relates it. So if you have your Bible, you want to follow along. I'm in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. And it says this, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. God our Father is saying, I'm angry. They sell the righteous for silver. You, you people who are supposed to be thinking of yourselves as my people, you're, you're taking good, righteous people and selling them into slavery. And the needy for a pair of sandals. Meaning, what's the value of a life to these Jews who have become idolatrous? A person's life is worth no more than a pair of sandals. You can go down and you can buy a pair of flip-flops and say, whatever I paid for those flip-flops, that's what this person's life is for. That's how far it had deteriorated in Elijah's day. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Doesn't matter if I need to climb over whoever, and especially if they're poor, so much the better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I need and trample on them to get myself where I need to be. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. You know what that's about? Baal and Ashtoreth, another part of their, of their worship was they actually had temple shrine prostitutes. And part of the worship for these fertility gods was to go and have sex with these prostitutes father and son using the same prostitute in that act. 
They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine as fines, meaning God's house has become a pub, and they don't even pay for their liquor there. Uh, They just take it as fines from people and then drink it because it's considered theirs now because they find people to get that wine in there. This is a nation falling apart and falling away from God. And it's visible in every way. And into that milieu, into that environment, God sends Elijah and he says, I want you to go directly to the head. Go to the very top. Go to Ahab and go to his wife, Jezebel. And I want you to tell them that there's not going to be any more rain in this land. And then he protects Elijah by taking him to this Kareth ravine, to this brook. And if you recall last week, he fed Elijah. Remember how he fed Elijah? He had these ravens deliver the food every morning and every evening to Elijah as he's there. And there was this brook to give him water. Now you notice at the beginning of today's reading, the brook is drying up after a little bit of Elijah staying there. And so now Elijah, being completely dependent upon God, must be wondering what's next, right? And I, I love the way God works. Do you, know, you know how God works, don't you? And it still happens this way today. I, I like to think about Elijah by that brook, or even this widow, as she waits every day for the the oil and the, and the flour. Can you imagine what might have been in Elijah's mind? Okay, so the ravens come and they deliver Elijah's bread, his groceries, and then he's got to wait till evening. And, and by the way, he can't go get a job because Ahab and Jezebel, the top people in the whole country, they want to kill him. If he shows his face, he, he's on the fast track to a hanging. So there's no other way for him to eat or drink water than to have God supply it by that Kareth ravine. And I wonder sometimes if we have, and, and of course we know that Elijah's faith was a gift of God, but that waiting, I, I, I look at it as a cycle. In our lives, there are periods of gifting and there are periods of gaps. So take Elijah, for example, every morning the ravens came and they gave him a gift and he received it with thanks and gratitude. I'm sure he praised God for this miraculous way in which his breakfast was delivered. But then there was a gap all day long. He had time to think about, wonder if those ravens are coming back tonight. And I would guess that you have that, especially in today's economy, and it might not just be a day. You've had times where you've received amazing gifts from God, and you have been thankful and grateful and blessed God and praised him like, wow, God, thank you for this car. God, thank you for this house. Uh, God, thank you for these children, for this spouse. And guys, you've been thankful. You've responded well the way Elijah would have. But then the gaps come. And, and you're thinking, how am I going to put bread on the table? I, I know God wants me to provide for my family and protect my family. How's that going to get done, Lord, in this gap? 
And man, I'll tell you so often for us when we've lost a job or when we have no visible means of support and we're not very sure if God's going to pull off another miracle, we begin to worry and fret and wonder, right? How am I supposed to provide? How am I supposed to protect, Lord? And what's amazing is for Elijah... There's two gaps. There's the waiting for the ravens every day and every night, but there's also this brook that as the drought goes on, Elijah can begin to even see the gap developing because the, the, the flow of the water it starts out as a creek and then it becomes a brook and then it becomes a trickle and then it becomes a little set of pools with dry ground in between. And he has to be wondering how much longer and I'm gonna, am I going to be able to stay here? And then the Lord comes to him as we just read and says, go. And even that couldn't have answered all of Elijah's questions. Surely not, because where God tells Elijah to go is a surprise and a shock in itself. He tells him to go to a village named Zarephath. Now, Elijah is a prophet to God's people. But where does God send Elijah? To a Gentile woman, a a non-believer, a person who's not from God's family, uh, a Phoenician woman who was from a, a village, Zarephath, which is near Tyre and Sidon, people who were sometimes allies of the Israelites and sometimes enemies of the Israelites. And God says, go there. And by the way, he, he doesn't give Elijah a little uh, a photo and say, here's the widow. You'll recognize her when you get there. And he doesn't have the widow come out from the village with, uh, you know, a little placard meeting uh, Elijah at the airport with, you know, Elijah on there. Elijah has to figure out how, you know, how am I going to find this woman? And, and by the way, Ahab and Jezebel are still after him. So he has to travel over 100 miles from the brook in the Kareth Ravine to Zarephath, all the while looking over his shoulder, wondering, am I going to get captured and executed? The point being, all along God, our, our gracious God, has been providing for Elijah, hiding him and protecting him. And Elijah has to simply say the word of the Lord. And and you notice that phrase several times in here, don't you? Look at verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. You see, all that Elijah really has to rely on is nothing out here that he can see, taste, touch. All he has to rely on is that he has a gracious God who makes promises that he can rest in and trust. That his God is a truthful God. And that when God protects and when God provides, he also directs, and that that direction is always the right direction to follow. I can tell you that Elijah did not do that in his own strength. Like us, he was a sinner. The only way Elijah did that was that he got filled up with the word, which in turn filled him up with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gave him courage and strength. And guys, it still works that way today. 
when things are a mess in our world, we have to come back here to get filled up with courage and with, with faith and with the strength to do what God is calling us to do, to do exactly what God was calling Elijah to do, to go to this widow. And what was Elijah's job? To take the providing and to take the protecting that God had been giving him and be a conduit for that and provide and protect this widow and her son. And it's the strangest thing, as we've taken note of already, when he gets there, He must be just in the back of his mind, maybe thinking, well, maybe this widow is going to have something that she can give me. And so he says to her, can you bring me some water? She says, sure. And can you bring me a little little biscuit? I'm hungry. And she says, I'd love to bring you a biscuit, but I don't have anything to make a biscuit with. And that's where the most amazing thing happens It doesn't seem like Elijah stumbles for a moment. He's so firmly embedded in God, God's grace and God's promises and the trust that this covenant God will take care of him. He even tells this widow, now you go, use what you've got, and I'm going to ask for an act of faith on, on your part, which is an amazing thing because do you notice what she says? Look at verse 12. As surely as the Lord, your God, lives. Not our God. See, the common phrase is, as surely as the Lord, our God, lives. Remember, this woman is a Phoenician woman. She's a Gentile woman. She's like, Elijah, this is your God. I hope you're right. But she does it. She follows through. She brings Elijah this biscuit, and look what happens. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, verse 15. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, just as the truthful God had promised, just as the gracious covenant God, the one who would one day send Jesus, his son, to be our Messiah, That same loving God, his word came true. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And Elijah was able to take God's providing and God's protecting and say, you know what? God is equipping me as a man to do the work of God, which is the same work that God is doing for me. Provide and protect. Flip your page over. Guys, you got all these magazines that will tell you what being a man is, but God really boils it down to two things. God has called us to provide and to protect. And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Where in the garden, God addresses Adam. And he he says to Adam, he says, look, I have made this beautiful garden and I've put you in the middle of it. And once again, I have a job for you. So we're going to put the passage from Genesis up. Let's read it together. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Let's all read it together. Come on, read with me. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it so it would provide for them and to take care of it, that is, to protect it. Just think about your work today. As a pastor, for example, I can take my work and and boil it all down to my job is to provide a meal of God's word for you every week, to provide opportunities for you to learn during the week in growth groups. And I love my growth group. We get together every Wednesday, and I'm constantly learning in that growth group and fellowshipping with people. It's awesome. So as a pastor... The work is to shepherd you and provide food for you, but it's also to protect you, to to teach you exactly what God's word says so that you're protected from the philosophies of the world that tell you a man is supposed to be this and a man is supposed to be that, and here's the goal and here's the work, and say, no, let's go back to God's word. Let's go back to the Bible and say, what does God say our job is? And it's very simple. Think about your own profession, your own work. Doesn't it really kind of break down to two tasks? There's a part of your work that involves productivity and providing. And there's very likely a part of your work that involves keeping and guarding and protecting. So that's what God has called us to do. But Do you see Elijah here? Here's the beauty. Elijah is not protecting and providing on his own strength. He has nothing. And one of the things that I think we have to really recognize as sin in our hearts is when we look at outward circumstances and we go, well, how am I I supposed to do that, God? You're not giving me anything to work with here. That we come back into the word and into God's promises the way Elijah did and trust that our God is a loving God, a covenant God, a God who went all the way to the point of sending his own son to redeem us from our sins, to take away our guilt and shame, to give us eternal life. And it cost his son his life on the cross. And the beauty of that is this. I was talking with someone this past week, and I love what he had to say to me. He said, you know what? One of the most beautiful things about Christianity is we do not teach a judgmental, wag uh, your finger in your face kind of God. What we teach is that Jesus, because of all that he's done for us in the shedding of his blood, has reconciled us to the Father. God is our Abba, Father, our Dad, because of Jesus. And we can stop worrying that God wants to punish us and hurt us and that God gets great delight and glee out of lengthening those gaps because you have a loving and merciful and wonderful and gracious Father all because of Jesus and his death for you. Isn't that amazing? And guys, I want you to hear this. Because I think that the challenge for us guys is to take too much onto ourselves, to to take ourselves too seriously. Imagine if Elijah thought all of this was up to him. Oh man, the pressure. 
But how does the pressure come off of Elijah's shoulders? He takes it and he squarely puts it on God. He says, God, you want me to eat? We need some oil and flour. God, you want this boy to live? I'm crying out to you. You're the only one that can bring him back to life and heal him and protect him. It's on you, God, not on me. And guys, I think we're so bad at that. We just go, in fact, we're grabbing stuff back from God. As guys like, oh, God, don't worry. I'll take care of that for you. Right? And guys, that's sin. Plain and simple. Because our ability to protect and provide does not come from us. It comes from the protector, capital P, and the provider, capital P. The one whom we have friendship and relationship with because of Jesus Christ. Amazing stuff. Notice what happens when all of this goes down. This, this, uh, this, her son gets sick, and he's about to die. And Elijah prays in verse 22. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah's not going, oh, oh one thing after another. Lord, when are you going to let up on me? That's not Elijah's response. Elijah is, okay, let's see what God will do here. And he cries out to God. He picks up the child, carries him down from the room after he's made alive. The boy's life returns to him and he lives. He gives him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And what's the response of the woman? Now I know, she says. Here's this Gentile, unbelieving woman who has told Elijah, that's your God, dude. I don't know if he's mine. But now what does she say? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Isn't that our highest aspiration, guys? As we protect and provide, not to bring attention to ourselves. Elijah's goal was never to draw attention to himself. Elijah's highest goal, what he truly aspired to, was to glorify God. And to be identified, not as a man's man, but as God's man. And that's exactly what the woman does. A man's highest aspiration is to do God's work of protecting and providing and to be identified as God's man. Read through all these magazines. You will not find many articles that encourage you to aspire to be identified as God's man. They will give you many definitions and many paths to being a man's man. But this woman calls Elijah God's man, and that is so much more. And where did Elijah's confidence come from? I'm I'm just going to say it one more time because I think it's so important. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah lived 800 years before Christ. We live 2,000 years after Christ. But I can tell you that Elijah's confidence 
came from the same place that your confidence and mine does because Elijah had this covenant God who had promised that a Messiah will come and he trusted that promise. And he knew that Messiah would wipe out sin and crush Satan's head. Today, here we are. 2012. And our confidence that our relationship with God is good and that he is our father and gives us the ability to be great dads on Father's Day is that Jesus died for us. That cross, that cross is what makes us confident that we can lean on God's word and lean on God's promises. And that word, the word is, it inspires faith in our hearts because it pours It pours faith into our hearts. And look at what happens. Everything that God promised came true. So write this down. What's a man's confidence? A man's confidence is that because of Jesus, God is kind and God is truthful. And that's true in both those times of giving and also in the times when he's giving us gaps, when we're waiting for God to move. And by the way, Gaps is the way that we perceive it. God is still giving you something during those times when you're experiencing what you might think of as a gap, if nothing more than just to simply quiet yourself before the Lord and wait for him to act. You see, here's the verse that I I love. And that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. If, if we want to know, guys, how to be God's men and not just men's men, if we want to know what this book has to say instead of those magazines, if we want to know whether or not we can pour out our hurts to someone and not end up like Junior Sale, if we want to know whether it's appropriate for us to accumulate wealth or to be decisive or be outside on the weekends paddling around and enjoying ourselves, here's the book right here. Because this word is not only truthful, it is powerful. It changes hearts and minds. It delivers the Holy Spirit into our hearts and gives us the same confidence that Elijah had to not waver and not shake and not be nervous or worried, but to simply very courageously and very forthrightly say, the Lord says, the Lord says, and to know that every word from the Lord's mouth is the truth. So here's your next step in the crosswalk. Key truth. Jesus Christ has redeemed and reconciled you to the Heavenly Father. The Lord's no longer your mortal enemy. He's your protector and provider. And he will take care of you and the people he has asked you to care for, to protect and provide. And your response to that beautiful, wonderful, gracious truth of God is, I'm going to be confident in God's love for me. I'm a man of God, and I will gladly protect and provide for others. Sure, sure that God will protect and provide for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you are the same covenant God, the same gracious God that is Elijah's God and is our God. 
And Lord, as you call upon us as men to protect and provide for the people that you've placed around us, be they our family members or, or someone as far away as a, a, a widow in Zarephath, whoever the widows in Zarephath are in our life, Lord, give us your word. And through your word, give us your spirit and the courage and the confidence that come from those. Help us to lean heavily on your love for us and on your word, which is the truth. And Lord, in that confidence, then, allow us to go forward, not timidly, but boldly, as Elijah did here under many threats with no visible support, and to, to, to carry out the responsibility that you've given us as men to be protectors and to be providers. Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we can do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.